Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Jack Smith is not messing around. This week he turned over a large stack of initial discovery to the Trump defense team that included far more than the rules required, including the grand jury testimony of nearly all the witnesses who will testify against Trump at trial. This show of bravado communicated confidence in the government's case and readiness to go to trial soon. The DOJ proceeded to file a request for a trial date of December 11th, trying to draw an early line against exorbitant Trump delays. At the same time, it appeared that Smith is working with dispatch on a second track, this one growing out of the events of January 6th. Judging from what we can discern of his grand jury activity, he looks to be readying a conspiracy charge relating to the multi-state effort to advance false electors for Trump in states Biden won. Most ominously for Team Trump, Smith seems ready to immunize the actors in various states in order to get at the conspiracy in the Trump inner circle, not excluding, perhaps, the former president himself. Several blocks up Pennsylvania Avenue from where the grand jury is meeting, the Republican majority in the House of Representatives put on a sophomoric display that stopped just short, for now, of a motion to impeach President Biden with similar motions in the wings bearing the names of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and DOJ Attorney General Merrick Garland. Contrasting with this week's theater was the most vivid and wrenching of real-life dramas, a slowly developing, excruciating vigil over the submarine Titan that ended with the revelation that the vessel almost certainly had imploded shortly into its mission, killing the five passengers. To take us from the high drama of accountability playing out in federal court to the low burlesque in the House of Representatives, I am really pleased to welcome three of the country's most insightful observers of the political scene. And they are Aaron Burnett. Aaron is the anchor, as everyone knows, of Aaron Burnett Out Front, which airs weekdays at 7 p.m. on CNN. She also serves as chief business and economics correspondent at CNN, and her extensive news experience includes moderating the 2020 CNN New York Times presidential primary debate. She's also covered the war in Ukraine extensively. Erin, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Great to be here. A first-time guest, Tim Miller. Tim's a writer at The Bulwark, host of the Next Level podcast and the show Not My Party. Previously, he served as communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign and political director for Republican Voters Against Trump. He's an MSNBC analyst and the author of Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Thanks so much for joining. I'm here for the low burlesque. (laughs) There you go. Charlie Savage a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and Washington correspondent for the New York Times. He's the author of two books, Power Wars, about national security legal policymaking in the Obama administration, and Takeover, which chronicled the Bush-Cheney administration efforts to expand presidential power. Previously, he reported for the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe. Thank you very much for joining, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's start with the DOJ special counsel investigation, which seemed like it made some major strides forward, and maybe even that the prospect of a separate new indictment came into some focus. But beginning with Mar Alago, so Eileen Cannon, who looks as if she'll be sticking around, set a very early trial date, August 2023. We know that won't hold. But the Times reported that about her four other, not a lot of experience, criminal trials, she also set a very quick date and then pushed it back. What do we expect a more realistic timeline to be here? I would expect this is going to be a long slog. Jack Smith said he wanted a speedy trial. He already turned over a first tranche of discovery 
And my understanding from the filing and from talking to people is it's much more than you would normally turn over at this stage and much more expansive. So there's, he's trying to take things off the table to fight about. But there's a lot to fight about. Even under the most experienced judge, there's months and months probably of fighting ahead of us over the use of classified evidence and what can be shown and what can be substituted or redacted and what the jury can see versus what the audience in the courtroom can see. That's all takes place under a law called SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act. And there is just a tremendous amount of line by line complexity. Here we've got 31 classified documents, 21 of which are classified top secret. The defense is going to want all kinds of other classified stuff contextually surrounding those things to be turned over. And if she rules in a way the prosecution doesn't like, it can stop pretrial hearings at that point and take it up to the 11th Circuit. So that alone is going to consume a long time. We also expect the defense to file motions of prosecutorial misconduct and selective prosecution and so forth. And depending on how seriously Eileen Cannon, who was a very pro-Trump judge in the way she ruled last fall, at least takes those filings, that could also create weeks of motions and documents and then even perhaps hearings and testimony. And we expect the defense to want to relitigate all the attorney-client privileged potentially information that went into that indictment. There was a big fight here in D.C. before the grand jury judge, Burl Howell, who eventually forced Trump's lawyers to turn over information that made it into the indictment. But Judge Cannon is not bound by those rulings. And so that I would expect they're going to be relitigated. So all that is to say, yeah, there's no way this trial is happening in August. It could be put off by it for a year or more. And then once we get close to the election, who knows? Yeah, Harry, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Ty Cobb, you know, the former White House lawyer, and, you know, he's been right on the fellow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much every step of the way. He hasn't minced words, right? He said Trump's a dead man. But he, I would say, would agree with what Charlie's saying, right? You could see how you could get to this before the election, but that wouldn't get you through any sort of an appeals process or anything else if you even were to get there. So no matter what, you end up in this unprecedented territory if he is the winner of what happens in a pardon and what, I mean, you, you end up right there again, if, if he is the nominee and the winner. Yeah. So let me make a few lawyers points, but starting with man, ex-lawyers, especially if you include the attorney general, have not been a very kind group to Donald Trump lately. First, to Charlie's point, it's not just more than they needed. It's like the whole mother load in particular, all the transcripts of all the witnesses. So it was a move of some bravado because normally you don't have to even deliver those until trial, until the witnesses testify. And they were saying, A, we've got our ducks in a row, and B, have at it, do your worst. Often there's cat and mouse games, especially with squirrely defendants like Trump. Second, it's clear that it will move a lot. And even a non-pro-Trump judge who doesn't have much experience will have trouble because they'll get up and say, if you don't give us these delays, there's due process issues. But the two big motions that you mentioned, the Corcoran motion and prosecutorial conduct, she did set a date that's pretty quick, and they're going to have to bring those. SEPA is going to be a whole world unto itself, it's true, but at least they tee it up soon. And the big question is, will she let them go past November? Oh, I'm sorry, I just want to say one thing to Aaron's point. You're right, there was no way in the world that an appeals are done, and should he win, he doesn't need to pardon himself. He can simply order, because it's a non-final conviction, just order DOJ to stand down, and that's a full stop. The self-pardon is constitutionally dubious, I think, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. But they did make this production, and he does know the whole case against him with all the witnesses. What is sort of in there, do we think, that is especially intimidating for Trump, just from your reporting on who's been in the grand jury? Certainly, it's all the grand jury transcripts. They're clear about that. It seems to be a lot of recordings of his interviews with people, including like book interviews. And so a theme already emerging has been Trump saying things about the case that could undermine his own defense or that contradict good arguments he could otherwise make. He keeps seeming to admit that he knew he had the documents and, you know, making excuses for that, which 
undercuts a great defense, which is, oh, I didn't know I had, still had these. I thought they'd all been turned over. But he takes that off the table by saying, yeah, I, of course I was holding on to them. I had every right to. <laughs> and that all comes in whether or not he testifies. But maybe his history as a liar helps him in this regard. You know, he says, I was a, I've always been a fabulist and an exaggerator. Why would this be any different? He tried that defense out really with Brett, right? Which was basically, he didn't say that exactly, but he basically was right. just saying, oh, I was showing off. It was really just newspapers and magazines. He was talking to Brett Baer about the war plan tape. Hey, I wonder what you thought about that. It's so precarious to try to psychoanalyze the guy, but a lot of people did see a, a somewhat different Trump in that Brett Baer interview off off his game not sure-footed jittery is a word i heard did it seem to you from your you know following of trump over the years that he's you know rattled you know trump is trump i always hate that there's a different trump I, trump's been the same trump since the 1980s <laughs> as, as best as i can tell I, that's that's always the excuse that my never again trumper friends start to use it's like oh we saw something different in trump after right, january right. 6th like really i, I didn't <laughs> but yeah. i guess i would just say in his answers the alphaness of the answers, I think particularly when on the question of where Brett asked him if he was worried, he gave a really deep pause to think about answering that question before kind of then moving into, you know, his, his usual rigmarole and the BS. And so I, I think that there's reason to believe that he, and I think there's been a lot of reporting in the Times and CNN and other places, that he was made to believe he was in a much better legal position than, than he was by his advisors and his actual lawyers and his volunteer lawyers like Tom Fitton. I do think the strength of the case and the types of people that had been traditionally allies speaking out about the strength of the case, I don't know if rattled is the right word, but maybe shook the usual bravado and confidence that we see from him. You've seen a lot of interviews with him, Aaron. Did it seem like same old, same old? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, I'm just obviously some of my colleagues reporting is that the mood has had a distinct change, Harry, in just the past week. You know, that first when this happened, there was the bravado and the world is against me and rising to the occasion. And, you know, he goes to the what Versailles, right? The Cuban restaurant, right? And then he goes to his fundraiser. And so he was getting fed that oxygen that he needs and thrives yeah. on. And then all of a sudden it's sort of the party's over. And it's like time to clean up after Thanksgiving dinner. And you're taking that deep breath. And it, at least from the reporting again, of my colleagues, that the mood is distinctly different. That he's just more down and he's more sour. And, you know, Tim, to your point, doesn't mean it just doesn't cycle right back <laughs> through, right? We're used to the, the wave pattern here. But it is in a different place now than it was a week ago. I mean, he's always at the very top of the charts in his vitriol. But it just seemed like also in response to some of the criticism he's taking from Republican grown-up establishment figures like Barr, he is wigging out in his hyperbolic rhetoric back at them. We were always looking during the impeachment for certain Republicans of gravitas to come out. McConnell came within an inch and then receded. Is the sort of chorus, I think you can say it's a chorus of people saying that at least two things. It seems like the case has merit and we don't think he should be president. Is that, do you think, not just shaking him up, but having a real effect on party elites that translates to his political fortunes? I don't think so. I mean, to me, is what we're seeing now materially different from what we've saw a million times before after saying John McCain like was a hero? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. going to 2016. This, we did this. I was out there recruiting other Republican elites to speak out. There's this weird element where Trump kind of sometimes benefits with Republican voters if it feels like the stuffed shirt old Republican types go after him. Like it kind of boomerangs back in his favor with voters. They're like, oh, he must be doing something right if, you know, those Bush era, Karl Rove era guys are going after him, right? So the kind of MAGA media world, I think, has more of a skeleton key towards whether voters are, are going to respond to the criticisms of them, like whether or not the grown-ups, quote-unquote, attack him. I, I don't know how much that really matters. The non-grown-ups attacking him would probably have a, a better impact <laughs> with the voters in question. You know, um, Harry, Jeff Zeleny's been out in Iowa. Uh -huh. I think it was Judy Woodruff, too, over on PBS. People have been talking to some Iowa voters and really interesting what is showing up. Judy, who did it with Sarah Longwell, my Bulwark colleague, they did the focus group together, yeah. So one of the things when Zeleny was talking to people, you know, you kind of get some people say exactly what you're saying, Tim, right? So it's the sort of, okay, wait, we've seen this before. Then some people are saying, okay, well, Trump's support is softening. So I don't know how you guys see this, but the latest CNN poll has, this is post-indictment, okay? 47% of Republicans and Republican-leading voters saying he's their first choice for the nominee, down from 53% in May. 
you can look at that like a move or you can look at that like, really, that's it? Softening? Is that too strong a word? But I mean, that's one poll, but it's not showing a massive move. Tim, you're raising your eyebrow. That I mean, six points does seem kind of significant. It's not nothing. I mean, we saw him bump up the other way after the Bragg indictment, right? right. So, so there's a meaningful right. difference there that like he's going down versus up following it. It's a small hit. I, and to me, I always use this as baseline. It's kind of like, wake me up when he's below his winning margin from 2016, right? And he got about 45 to 47% in 2016. I, I think if we start to see him get down into the low 40s, I'm going to start to get interested. And so, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see whether this will move any of the actual Trump people off of him. And otherwise, I think it's a little bit of noise between people who are kind of what I call the soft Trump voters, people that like him but are maybe open to another option. Those people moving off are kind of the baseline. I was just going to say, also, if I remember your CNN poll correctly, Aaron, it's not that the points he lost went to DeSantis, whose number didn't move. It Correct, went to, yeah. you know, one of the sort of single digit candidates or several of them, right. which isn't going to lose him the election. The support needs to rally around someone who actually poses a threat or it's just sort of a signal of disgruntlement more than a threat to him. And meanwhile, when you have, you know, what's happening in Congress right now, the House is trying to nullify the two impeachments of him. All the signaling within what is now Republican elites is still defend Trump, defend Trump. And there's always a rally around the flag effect in how partisanship works. You know, going back to Bill Clinton when he was impeached, right? And suddenly all the Democrats were like pissed at the Republicans about it. So as long as he's still in primary land, it doesn't seem like this is going to throw him off. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see, in addition to trying to take back the Trump backsees, do backsees on the Trump impeachment, you're starting to see a little bit of now movement around a Biden impeachment, which for a while, really, the kind of quote unquote adults in that Republican House were really like, we don't want to do this. But the Hunter Biden fallout, the supposed whistleblowers from the IRS, they haven't been named yet, saying that Hunter was was getting a fair unfairly what lenient deal, I guess. It doesn't read that way to me, but but that's what these whistleblowers are saying. That that would maybe be the impetus for you're starting to see some of these mid-bench MAGA House members starting to stir to use that as an impetus to go after Biden. And again, all of this, I just think this deep state versus Hunter, deep state versus Trump, all of that serves to benefit Trump in the narrative, in the conversation, because it kind of puts all those other candidates out of the picture. It's this deep state versus Trump, Biden versus Trump element that we're seeing continue to congeal in the House. And we'll move to that shortly. But this week, when it comes up for the second or third time, McCarthy doesn't say, no way, have you lost your mind? He said, not now. Just It would look a little bad after just censuring Adam Schiff. Charlie, I wanted to ask you about Trump has come out and very expressly said he's going to politicize the DOJ. If he gets in, he's going to go after Biden, et cetera. And you wrote about his political opponents about their attitudes toward the department, and which had some fairly striking findings. Can you explain? Trump came out and said after he got indicted, when I get back in power, I am going to appoint real special prosecutors. They're going to go after Biden and his family, the, the Biden crime family. And a problem with that, of course, is under Merrick Garland, there is already two Trump appointed prosecutors who were investigating uh, Hunter Biden and President Biden's handling of classified documents. So he was promising to do something that's happening. But his implication was, well, they're not real, even though they're people I put in place. I'll put in someone who will actually put those guys in jail regardless, I guess. And this is a violation of a post-Watergate norm that the White House, the president, does not get involved in individual case decisions in the Justice Department, going back to when the reaction to Nixon trying to shut down the Watergate investigation by firing a series of people in the Saturday Night Massacre. And this norm emerges that you just the Justice Department is hands off. And of course, he tried a little bit, kind of haphazardly and sporadically when he was in power. He was pushing to have John Kerry investigated over his interference with the Iran nuclear deal unwinding. He was certainly pushing to have John Durham indict people like Biden and Jim Comey and so forth and was angry at Bill Barber, and that didn't happen. Uh, but he now seems to be saying, I'm just going to throw that into overdrive. And he's, he's got these sort of minions who are out in think tanks, people like Jeff Clark, 
Russ Vought, who are developing your names for putting right, it, yes, or, you know, putting yeah. out white papers and things that looks like law review articles that are laying the intellectual groundwork for the notion that there is no actual legal bar to a president directing investigations and charges. The Justice Department is not an independent agency, which may be true as a matter of law. Things can be lawful, but just not done. Lawful, but awful. You know, there is no provision of the Constitution or statute that says the president can't tell the attorney general to open an investigation into something and fire him if he won't do it. It's just since Watergate, especially, that's not how this country works. And they're sort of unabashedly saying that's how it's going to work if there's a second Trump term. So with my colleagues, Jonathan Swan and Maggie Haberman, we put together this piece where, and, and Jonathan Wiseman, who are asking all the other contenders for the Republican nomination, you know, what do you make of this? It's sort of a two-part question. Is it lawful for a president to direct the opening or closing of an investigation, the bringing of charges, the dropping of charges, specific case decisions? And even if it is, in your view, should a president do that? Or should a president obey this post-Watergate norm and be hands-off? And would you pledge to not get involved in case decisions if you got in the White House? And you know, there were a couple Republicans, Chris Christie, Asa Hasegen, who offered a full-throated defense of the way things work in this country or have for the last 50 years and said it's really important that presidents don't do that and they wouldn't do that, et cetera, absent some extraordinary circumstance like a case involving that had you know, foreign policy implications, which falls outside of that norm. But uh, most of his rivals were not willing to defend the norm. They either gave us this gobbledygook answers that didn't actually get to the point, I'm sure quite deliberately. DeSantis has been out there emphasizing that a president can control the Justice Department and it's not independent, which is, again, perhaps true legally, but doesn't get at the moral or ethical or norm issue. And he just, they're not willing to say, with the exception of Christie and Hutchinson, that's not how things are done in this country and I won't do it that way. And therefore, you know, it's part of the sort of unwillingness to criticize Trump, even as they're trying to take him out in the primary, which it seems to be most of their strategies. I mean, I found it of a piece with the supposed promise to pardon him. And, you know, I'm a fuddy-duddy from DOJ, but I, I just got to say that, yes, there's this constitutional veneer that you can at least talk about in polite company about a unitary executive and the like. But the norm you're talking about is every bit as axiomatic and in the DNA of DOJ for very, very good reasons. So this, to me, seems one of the bulwarks that would really take us toward autocratic territory. And it's sort of chilling that other people, he might not win the nomination, but with his influence, whoever the nominee is, if they're committed to these kind of Trumpian ideas, then Trumpianism really outlasts Trump. Tim, I wonder your thoughts about this, because what, how the hell is the party generally going to just dig itself, to me, what seems like just this giant hole that they just go deeper and deeper into with this kind of lasting influence, even when he's out of office. Well, they're not going to dig their way out of it because this is where the party is going and has been going. I, to me, the most interesting thing about the story that Charlie was just talking about is that this big middle of the party, and I don't mean middle of the country, I mean middle of the Republican Party, of people that, that like Trump, that are not maybe in the cult, that are not, you know, my people like Asa Hutchison, you know, trying to stand up to the man, right? Like the, the people that are in the, the center of where the Republican Party is right now. They have moved very notably towards these more authoritarian type steps where it is not a free markets and free people that is not in vogue anymore. It is the government should act to defend conservatives against this deep state attacks and to push conservative policies against companies like Disney, et cetera. The DeSantis answer obviously is the most full-throated about how he would control DOJ. But the fact that even your Tim Scotts of the world are giving mealy mouth yeah, answers. Right. Ben Shapiro, you know, who is, for whatever you think of him, is kind of seen as like an intellectual, kind of a, was more right. of a traditional Republican, more conservative, but traditional. He was out there saying this week, we might need to move to a system where only Republicans prosecute Republicans and Democrats prosecute Democrats, you know, like, like these sorts of things that like we need to be explicitly partisan now because the deep state, the government is is so hostile to us. I just think that's really alarming that that kind of part of the party has moved in a Trump's direction in a very explicit way. That's what you're first Republicans prosecuting Republicans are instantly excommunicated, right? Bob <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know exactly how we're going to work that out. By definition. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Tim, you said something that really hit to me because the other day, every time you talk about Durham, right, you're saying, well, Trump appointed. And I just, or when you're talking about the three panel of judges that overruled Cannon back originally in the Mar-a-Lago documents, the thing where they were three Republican appointed conservative, we have to add that in. And it just didn't used to be something from where I sit that ever came up, right? Because yes, right. this is how judges are appointed, but people had a faith in the system and a faith in, in the way things were adjudicated. And now that's gone. So now I'm thinking, gosh, well, what role are we playing by every time we say a judge appointed by, because the special counsel is appointed by Trump, that means it's, you know, we're all playing into it. You were on there, like when Charlie Rangel was being investigated, you weren't saying, and it was a Clinton appointed judge that's looking into Charlie Rangel. You know what I mean? Like others, yeah. sort of, when you look back in like 90s, 2000s kind of controversies yeah. like this, that was, you're right, that is new. And at the highest level, I, I find it heartbreaking at the Supreme Court, but I'll just a little newsflash here. They're in their last week, and if you suss out who's got opinions left to give, you see some very new appointees, that is to say, Trump appointees who, along with Roberts and Alita, could be issuing the very biggest cases. And we kind of know what that means. It's a shame. We shouldn't know what that means, but, but it seems like we kind of do. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the topic today is immunity, which is very much in the news, especially with Jack Smith's investigation of the false elector scheme. Immunity is a device that prosecutors can employ to guarantee that witnesses won't be subject to criminal penalty for their honest testimony therefore removing any need for Fifth Amendment protection and requiring them to testify. And to tell us more about it, I'm pleased to welcome Nimish Patel. Nimish Patel is a writer and comedian. In 2017, he became the first Indian American writer on Saturday Night Live. He also wrote for Hassan Minhaj when Minhaj hosted last year's White House Correspondents' Dinner and for Chris Rock when Rock hosted the Academy Awards in 2016. Nemish recently released his first comedy special, Lucky Lefty, which you can find on his YouTube channel. So I give you Nemish Patel on immunity. What is immunity? Recent reports of state and federal investigations into Donald Trump's various alleged unlawful activities include the detail that certain witnesses have been given immunity. For example... We've learned that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis approved immunity for several Georgia officials who participated in a scheme to replace genuine electors with phony counterparts loyal to Trump. So, what exactly is witness immunity? Who gets it? And what role does it play in the criminal justice system? Witness immunity is a legal protection that shields witnesses from being prosecuted for truthful testimony they provide. Immunity is most typically a way for prosecutors to get around an individual's assertion of her Fifth Amendment rights. The Fifth Amendment, of course, protects against compelled, incriminating testimony in a criminal case. With immunity, a person's testimony can no longer be used against her. Consequently, the Fifth Amendment shield no longer applies and she can be required to testify truthfully. Immunity comes in one of two forms, use immunity and transactional immunity. Use immunity, also called derivative use immunity, prohibits the prosecution from using information from a witness's testimony against the witness in a criminal case. Transactional immunity provides blanket protection from prosecution for the crimes or the transaction a defendant testifies about. Witnesses will often seek to secure immunity in exchange for testimony. Prosecutors, in turn, are cautious about giving it out and usually do so only if it's the sole way to procure important information. In the federal system, grants of witness immunity are, by statute, always grants of use immunity. So, in granting immunity, the federal government agrees not to use any information the witness provides in her testimony against her. But federal prosecutors can still prosecute the witness for the crimes or transactions she testified about, so long as they do so without relying on any information the witness provided or any information that derives from the witness's testimony. A grant of immunity extends only to truthful testimony. If an immunized witness lies in her testimony, she can still be prosecuted for perjury. For Talking Feds, I'm Nimesh Patel.
Thank you for that explanation, Nemish Patel. Nemish will be going on tour in the U.S., U.K., and Canada later this year. You can find show and ticket info at findingnemish.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always, hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's shift tax into the house itself and the, the rawest kind of politics. So Charlie Rangel, you mentioned, he was censured. I think he was two, you know, there been three in 40 years. He was the first. He had a pretty good long list of crimes and ethics violations. And there's only been 24 in history, but now we got the 24th yesterday Adam Schiff. It was hard to even get the bill of particulars, but... His pencil neck, I think, was the main one. (laughs) Exactly. That was it. Let me ask you, Aaron, I mean, it seems like sheer peak and viciousness, but there's some political calculation, I assume, going on there. What's the strategy, if there is one, behind this agenda of reprisal, if I could call it that? Certainly. I mean, you're at a point now where it's it's as if you just feel like it's an eye for an eye, right? I mean, it's very biblical in what you're seeing. And to the extent McCarthy tried to be an adult in the room, right? To the extent that he had a, okay, I'm going to feed my, I'm going to go give some red raw meat to Marjorie Taylor Greene or the Lauren Boberts. And, you know, they're in their own thing now, right? <laughs> Don't invite them to the same party. But then I'm going to be an adult in the room and other things, right? That, that this shows that that's, that you're starting to slide down a slope. And where do you get? I think it's interesting what Tim just raised, that he's hearing that maybe some of the discussion on impeachment of Biden is gaining more steam than it had been. And maybe it is McCarthy, Tim, Charlie realizing, hey, I thought I had more control of this or control in a different way. And maybe I don't. So that's going to change the direction we go. Some of the fallout from his 
ushering through the debt ceiling lifting deal, right? Yeah. It was a complete freak out by the far right yeah. and the ground the house to a halt. We already know that he had to make some promises just to get through the speaker vote. That's what they want. Maybe he'll think of it. Well, you know what? An impeachment of Biden is symbolic. It'll go nowhere in the Senate. The country won't fall. I'll appease them. I mean, I can see the logic of that, actually. So it's related to a couple of things. One is the debt deal, which I have to give Kevin credit for that. That, that, that went a lot smoother than I expected to. I mean, maybe it's a low bar to step over, but I, you know, the types of folks he was dealing with, I, I thought that the risk there was a lot greater than it ended up being. But, but he had to make those sacrifices, which made some folks unhappy, even though they eventually essentially allowed that to go through. And then in the meantime, what Comer and Jordan have been doing has been basically a bust. Right. It hasn't been Benghazi 2.0. It's been a nothing burger. Right? So there's this angst. The whistleblower got lost somewhere. Right? Yeah, yes. the whistleblower. They might be dead. He <laughs> was here and just so a minute like, ago, right? You know, they need to get a scalp, right? They need to get their pound of flesh. And so I, I think now this Hunter Biden situation is going to be the next place that they look and trying to r- rope Joe into that, et cetera. So, I mean, what I think you guys are suggesting and makes sense is it's not a broader political agenda. It's more an, a sort of intramural one with a kind of payback or show who's boss to McCarthy after the disappointment that they seemed unable to do anything in the debt crisis. You know, Schiff, it was interesting to me, he went straight for McCarthy, right? In addition to calling it a badge of honor and standing in the, the well, he said that this shows McCarthy has no control so I found it interesting that he would try to put pressure that way. The easy target for him, obviously, is more Marjorie Taylor Greene or Boebert, and he tried to make it about McCarthy. Did that strike anybody else as intriguing? I thought it was a good week for Schiff. I don't know about yeah. that particular choice. A lot of viral videos giving uh, John Durham the business. John Durham made that easy for Schiff by just not understanding like basic facts about what happened in the initial Russia investigation that he was supposedly investigate, you know, the lead investigator on. And so between that and then just this negative partisanship world we're in, which is like if they're after me, I must be doing something good. Schiff, I think, was just able to leverage both those things, you know, as he's in a in a Senate primary. Yeah, they sure didn't hurt his chances in a in what's a really tough primary, right? Yeah, more it seems like McCarthy's coming after him, the more he can make that case that I'm the kind of fighter that you guys want in a top two Democratic race. Yeah, what do you think in general, confronted with this kind of romper room of the on the other side? Should Dems just be sitting back and watching it play out? Do they try in any way to kind of steer the the bull one way or another? Well, they've got their own questions. We'll see how the polls keep coming out. But I mean, the rise of RFK Jr. and his sort of stubborn 20 percent, whatever that is, whatever that the protest vote or whatever it is, it's it's there. So when you talk about a, a romper room of politics, I mean, they they I guess it would be hard in that context to just take the high road and say, if you just sit back and be quiet, everything's just going to be fine for them. I agree with that. I think the Democrats, um, you know, this takes us outside of the legal elements of the discussion, just into the raw political. But if I was them, I would just be leaning to this conversation about how the Republicans aren't able to actually do anything. To me, you know, I think that's a very safe place for the Democrats to contrast with the Republicans on. I think that the media and just the Republicans' own dysfunction, MTG calling Bobert the B-word, and, and no, like all of that is going to like make Republicans seem crazy on their own. If I was Democrats, I think they've done a really poor job of saying, okay, it's not just that they're crazy, they're not effective at trying to help you. Yeah, I think they've done a poor job of campaigning on the accomplishments of the Biden years and then also using that as a contrast with just, as you call it, the romp, Republican romper room. I mean, really, besides the debt deal, they've been barely able to do anything Like they can't even get consensus among themselves and just sort of paint them as they're obsessed with Hunter Biden. They're obsessed, you know, with these random things that don't impact your lives at all. And it's preventing us from actually trying to solve problems that that you do care about. That that seems like a safe place for the Democrats to be and and to be focusing their messaging. Here's the thing that really wigged me. I I guess this is very pointy headed, but Durham's testimony, the actual censure against Schiff Each of them seemed like Orwellian would be the fancy pants word, but I mean, they were literally trying to reverse facts, like rewrite history. It's the ultimate histories of propaganda of the victors or whatever. They they actually want to dispute 
facts that I thought had been, you know, long since established and, and you thought they might go Trumpian going forward, but they're so backward looking and so focused on rewriting things, it seems to me. They never accepted the facts to begin with. That was the whole point of Durham. Right. They were hoping that Durham was going to create a new alternate Kellyanne alternate facts where where this investigation was actually a plot by the Democrats and the deep state to frame Trump. Uh, like that was their theory of the case. It's what they've been pushing for eight years. If you read conservative media, if you read The Federalist, you're very, quite familiar with that alternate history. And they were hoping that Durham was going to be able to put that forth and and because it was not true and because Durham seems pretty incompetent, those two things made it very challenging for them to do so. He's the latest of everything Trump touches dies, though. He used to be pretty respected in DOJ. I thought at the Durham hearing, the interminable six-hour Durham hearing, you know, it was one thing to see Adam Schiff tussling with him over whether he had even a basic command of the facts of the real Russia investigation. And much of the hearing was this very predictable partisan, you know, alternative universes where yeah. the Democrats were saying the Russia investigation was necessary and justified. Look at all this stuff it found. And the Republicans were saying it was corrupt and a political hit job and whatever. So the thing that really broke against that and was interesting to me was Matt Gates's questioning of Durham, because Gates, I think, articulated the rage against Durham that I see online among the sort of MAGA Twitter when they're yeah. not in the same room as Democrats and they're talking to each other extraordinary disappointment that Durham didn't prove anything. They really drank the Kool-Aid that he was going to prove a deep state conspiracy. He was going to put Jim Comey and Andy McCabe in jail. He was going to put Obama and, and Biden and Clinton in jail. He was going to prove this whole thing was a, you know, a Western intelligence plot to get Trump. And he tried. He tried. It's not so much that he failed as that he was set up to fail, right? Because it just none of it was all just sort of invented out of Trump himself to some extent, creating this alternative fact pattern for his supporters to buy into that this was just a deep state plot and, and spying on him and so forth. There was never any there there. So then there was nothing for him to find. Like, what was he supposed to do? But Matt Gates came at him hard. He's like, well, you, you're part of the cover-up, Durham. You're the Washington generals being paid to lose to the Harlem Globetrotters. This whole thing it was a particularly hilarious line where it was like these things were folding in on top of each other where he said, well, your report that finds these sort of little faults with the FBI, confirmation bias, wasn't even political bias. That's just inoculation against the real truth out there. And then he catches himself thinking about inoculation as something that works. And he's like, of course, inoculations actually make things worse because in that sort of anti-vax way, sort of bleeding into his, his comments. That was the most interesting part of the hearing. It was like the, the rage that it didn't work. And the rage, of course, because if facts don't fit, there's only one explanation of, you know, some kind of political malfeasance. So just one last question. I mean, it was good entertainment value, everyone. Wow, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bobert are going at it. But does it reflect some broader tension within the conference or even the Freedom Party? Is there schisms that we don't see uh, from here where we paint them all as a kind of monolithic force? My take is that the Bobert and MTG thing is petty personal dispute, yeah. fight for attention. But the within MAGA schism, it will be something that will be continue to be interesting to watch, right? Because this is really the first time that these some of these folks have an off-ramp. And there's a, a percentage of people who have been doing the Trump thing as kind of play acting, right? Like they're going along with it because they feel like they have to, but they think he's a buffoon. You know, we've seen a million of, you know, books have been written about all the conversations to this effect, right? And so DeSantis gives them an off-ramp that they never really had before, right? Like Biden was not a legitimate off-ramp. They felt like impeaching and convicting Trump was not a legitimate off-ramp because there would have been a revolt mm. among voters. That DeSantis is an off-ramp. So I do think that there might be some growing intra-party tension under that veil, which is like, we don't, there's certain of this stuff we don't have to do anymore. And like, why are you forcing us to continue to do this Trump stuff when we have this other option? And so some of that might bubble up. But I don't know that the MTG and Bobert thing is really a reflection of that. I think that's just between the, the gals. Just what it looked like. Yeah. Junior high. Um, all right. I wanted to leave a few minutes to take some stock of probably the biggest, certainly the most, um, tragic news of the week, namely the death, almost certainly by catastrophic implosion, not long after setting out of the Titan submarine. 
it put me in mind a little. I'm I'm old. I, th- I must be the oldest guy of, of, of the four of us, but of the very high profile and wrenching explosion in 1986 of the Challenger, which, you know, it killed everyone aboard. How can we, and what's the role of you as media folks to process such a catastrophic event? How do you even present it in real time? You know, it was funny when it happened. There's been, I know, people calling out the double standard or for lack of a better word, right? I mean, you've got these migrant ships, right, that yeah. go down and 800 people are on them and people are drowning and, and dying these these horrific deaths and people don't pay attention, okay? And that is a horrible thing. And then something like this happens and then, you know, we have all seen the criticism, well, a billionaire and four millionaires go down and everybody's paying attention. So I understand that criticism, but I will say there was something about it, just the fascination that everybody had. I mean, I don't know anybody who wasn't fascinated by this from all walks of life, from all interests and all backgrounds. And, you know, there's something about the fascination with the fact that people would choose, would choose, right? They weren't there by desperation or, you know, that they could do in the world, right? And they chose to do this, to do this exploration and to go. And I think in some way that contributed to our collective fascination. But I'll also say there haven't been, you know, I can think over the past few years, only a few stories like that, that really capture people's in such a mass way, people's attention and care of what happened. I mean, MH370 in its own way was similar to that for a while. And we all were hoping, right, that this would have a different ending, even though, you know, if you really thought about it, I think everybody sort of knew in their heart how this yeah. happened. But there was just this fascination and maybe it's something about that, that exploration and who in the world would choose to get in a thing like that and go do that, right? Who would do that? And these people did it and they took that risk and, and it has had this horrible ending, but it was, it was fascinating. My interest was mainly limited to just how like you couldn't pay me $250,000 to get into that thing. I, I just like, you know what I mean? Like to me, like that, it's like the most unimaginably like a horrific death, like it is the stuff of nightmares. And yeah. and I think that that channels people's imaginations in a way that some of these other, other stories don't. It's the opposite direction, literally, but we're seeing the emergence of space tourism for millionaires, big time millionaires, not mere millionaires. And you can imagine that sooner or later, something challenger-like is going to happen, which will have a very similar framing around it. It's like, well, why, why are you doing that in the first place when you could be on a beach somewhere? Yeah. I just felt the drama, it's, it's ironic isn't really the right word, but the implosion probably had happened before we'd even heard of it. But it was also the high drama of people immediately facing their own uh, death. And I think it was impossible not to imagine what it would be like down in that vessel. Let me just ask, especially you, Aaron, because you had to be out there and on TV and, and covering people. How does a network or a news agency try to go about reporting on an unfolding tragedy of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it is that we're all holding out hope, even though, again, it's realistic, right? But you're trying to walk the line of not being unreasonable in, in the way you talk about it and think about it. And then even afterwards, you know, when we finally found out, you know, even in the same space of a few minutes, you know, you're talking about the construction of the hull and the carbon fiber and whether that was irresponsible, had more approvals. And then two minutes later, you know, I'm talking to the the stepson of of Paul-Henri Narjale, right? Been down there 35 times, right? Incredibly experienced diver, you know, talking to to his stepson. He's talking about the death of someone who was so important in his life, you know? So it's like those things being side by side. Tonight, I'm speaking to the grandfather of the Pakistani son, right? So there's the father and the son, and then their father slash grandfather is coming on. You had some great experts. Were they telling you during commercial break, you know what, it's it's really bad? At first, yes. One of them was saying that he'd heard about some kind of sound or an implosion, and he didn't right. have inside knowledge on the fact that the U.S. Navy had picked it up, but it sort of heard that. But then when the knocking came, the or it obviously yep. now. Yep kind of like background noise or something. Um, But when that happened, they all actually were hopeful. And I think that was the thing that really actually touched me to what you said, that people who know, I mean, people, Tim, to your point, who do choose to go down there, who are like, this is what I want to do. They did have hope, 
even though they knew more, no more than we'll ever know, right? Mm -hmm. They knew what most likely certainly had happened and they still clung to hope. That's just human beings. That's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to you listeners to end on a, on a bit of a sober note, but it was such an important point and I really wanted to get the thoughts of people who cover news day in and day out. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Aaron, Tim, and Charlie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with criminologist Casey Jordan about the likely profile of the defendant for whom police have just announced a DNA match in the gruesome University of Idaho murders case. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it, and you get some excellent content in exchange. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks to Nimish Patel for explaining immunity. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>